Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Today is going to be part one of a two, maybe three, maybe more part sermon. I don't exactly know how this is going to go yet on what it means to walk in the Spirit. So we will begin, like we do every week, reading Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look at verse 16. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Will you bow your heads with me? Spirit, we come now and we ask uh, for you to be with us, to help us think through your word, to even understand our own hearts and how we understand you, and to give us a real sense this morning of how dependent we are on you, not just for the big things of life, but for every day and everything that comes up throughout the day. We need you, and this morning we ask your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I would say, and I think probably more than one of you would agree with me on this, that the Christian life is often a life of tension. Okay? There's tension between things I understand about God's Word, about the Scriptures, about doctrine, and the many things I don't understand about those things. Tension between what I want to be and what I actually am. Uh, tension between how I live in complete dependence on God. I need Him to do any and every good thing in me, and yet at the same time how I'm responsible to obey and to, to try to live out a certain life before him. So just lots of different points of tension, and we're about to feel some of that here as we begin studying verse 16. To set the stage, let's just quickly remind ourselves of the two big ideas that we have learned in verses 1 through 15. Big idea number one, coming from verses 1 through 12, was that we are free in Jesus. Okay, we're free. Namely, we are free from the Old Testament law. So we are no longer under all of the restrictions and requirements that were contained in the Old Testament law. We no longer have to order our lives by that. We no longer have to try to live acceptably before God through the various requirements or restrictions of the law. Christ has come. He has fulfilled that law. And now all those who place their faith in him are free from that law with him. So that was the big point of verses 1 through 12. 
big idea number two, verses 13 to 15, was that we should not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, let's back up in our minds a little further and go back to chapter three. How many of you remember when we were in chapter three, I asked the question, what is the purpose of the law? And the answer that I gave to us to that question, what is the purpose of the law, was three EXs. Remember that? The purpose of the law is to expose and exacerbate sin until it, is, until it expired. You remember that particular definition? It's still the correct one. And one of the things that we talked about during that sermon was a, a chicken and the egg type question. Which came first, sin or the law? You know, was there sin in the world before the law came and the law just came to expose that sin? Or was there no sin in the world before the law came and when the law showed up, all of a sudden it, it sort of caused sin, okay? It made, it, it made things that weren't sinful, maybe just poor choices before, all of a sudden they became sin. So which one was it? And the answer, as we saw biblically, was both. On the one hand, the law did come to expose sin that was already in the world. There were already things in the world that were sinful, and the law called it sin. And yet, at the same time, it exacerbated sin by adding more ways that one could sin against God and violate what he was requiring. Now, the piece of that that interests me for our purposes this morning is the idea that sin existed before the law. That there were things in this world before the law was ever given that were already sinful in God's eyes. And if you're sitting there wondering why I'm bringing that up, well, it's because Paul's concern that we might use our freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh is actually predicated on that understanding. You say, uh, Stacy, I am totally, totally lost right now. Can you help me out? Sure. Let's, uh, let's play a little game here, some, some I like hypotheticals. Hypotheticals help me think through things and help me kind of experiment with ideas to see where I'm wrong or where I need to go with my thoughts. And so we'll use three little hypothetical scenarios. I just want you to listen carefully, consider them, don't answer back with any of the questions, just be thinking about it as I give them to you. Scenario number one is the fact that some of you in this room may have this week or maybe right this very moment or you may later on in the next few days wear an article of clothing that is made of a cotton polyester blend. Now you say, so what? Well, in the law, specifically in Deuteronomy 22, verse 11, you are forbidden from wearing a fabric made of mixed materials. Okay, that is forbidden by God's law, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 11. All right, that's scenario number one. Scenario number two is that some of you may have this very morning, in fact, or you wish you had this very morning, had bacon for breakfast. Or perhaps you've had some ham this week, or you're going to have ham at some future point in the week, and you're all excited about that. Well, unfortunately, may I point out to you that again in the law, specifically in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, you are forbidden from eating pork. Forbidden. Deuteronomy, excuse me, Leviticus 11, 7 and 8. All right, that's scenario two. Scenario number three is that, and I certainly hope this isn't true for any of us. The first two may be, but I hope this one will not be. I hope that none of you have in the past, will not today, and will not in the future go out and murder anyone in cold blood, all right? I'm talking pull out a gun, shoot them in the head just because you want to. Uh, because, if you're not aware, in the law, specifically Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you are forbidden from murdering, okay? Scenario number three, no murder. All right, so here are three scenarios. We've got clothing made of mixed materials. We have eating pork, 
and we have cold-blooded murder. Now, we're going to do a little pop quiz here, one that even though you may not have studied this out in the past, I'm pretty sure we'll all get correct, at least I'm going to hope so, uh, just based on whatever you know about the Old and New Testaments. As you look at those three scenarios, are there any of them that you would say are no longer sinful for us today? And are there any then that you would say continue to be sinful for us today? You got your answers in your mind? Okay, I'm going to try to be a mind reader. It was Johnny Carson with the thing, you know, you put a little card to his head. I can't remember what that was called. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, here's my guess. My guess is that most of you, if not all of you in this room, said scenarios one and two are no longer sinful for us today, but that scenario number three still is. Am I right? Okay, man, I am, I am a prophet and the son of a prophet, you could call me. Uh, man, that's great. All right. Now here's the really hard question. You're, 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 you're doing pretty well so far. Why did you draw that distinction? You know, all three of those things were prohibited by the Old Testament law, correct? God said, don't do any of them. Don't wear mixed material fabrics. Uh, don't eat pork. Don't murder. So if the law says don't do it, why are you now sitting here brazenly saying that you can do it? Well, you say, Stacy, you should know the answer to that question. You've been teaching us all along here at Galatians, right? The law is done. It's expired. And so because the law is done, those things are fine, and yet the law also said do not murder, and you're not saying that's fine, so you're, yeah, we've got some problems here. Why are only two of the three permissible now? Well, and I think this probably gets us to the heart of the matter. Two of those three scenarios are examples of how the law exacerbated sin. One of them is an example of how the law exposed sin. Let's take murder for our first example. It would seem to me, based on a broad reading of Scripture, that murder is a violation of God's character. In other words, it's sinful, whether the law specifically says, do not murder or, or anything else, right? It's just, it's just sinful. We can take this all the way back to Cain and Abel, that incident, right? Cain clearly sinned against Abel by murdering him, sinned against God by destroying someone made in the image of God. Uh, I can look at the flood story. We're told that violence filled the earth. It never says specifically that murder was happening. But if violence is so uh, filling the earth that God is going to bring worldwide judgment and, and destroy all of humanity outside of Noah's family, I'm guessing it was pretty bad. I don't think it's a crazy thought to think that perhaps murder was going on at that point. So clearly, God doesn't like murder. So it would seem to me that murder is a sin apart from the law. Okay? When, when the law came and finally codified, you shall not murder, it wasn't causing murder to become a sin. It was simply exposing it to be sin. Does that make sense? You see, it's just exposing sin in that case. But, but for the other two examples, wearing clothing with mixed fabrics and eating pork, yeah, I don't really get the sense from any other part of Scripture, either before or after the law, that these things were actually inherently wrong or sinful or a violation of God's character. Uh, if I take the eating pork example as an easy one, um, based on Jesus' teaching in Mark 7, verses 14 to 23, where he declares all foods clean, Peter's experience, Acts 10, verses 9 to 16, it seems pretty clear that if you want to eat pork now, go home and eat pork. Okay? It's, not, it's not sinful to eat pork, not inherently sinful. These are both examples of how the law exacerbated sin. It took things and made them sin because now you couldn't do it. Now, let's tie this in to Paul's concern here in Galatians 5. 
What this shows us is that even though the law is over, there are still things, still sins, that we as believers might struggle with. And this is what is undergirding his concern here, that these Galatian believers may now use their newfound freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, that they might accidentally misunderstand or misapply what it means to be free from the law and therefore go out and do things that God never intended them to do. When it comes to wearing mixed fabrics and eating pork, that's not in view. If Paul walks into the Galatian church and he sees a guy there in a cotton polyester blend robe eating a BLT, he's not going to be like, works of the flesh. It's not going to happen, okay? just isn't. But, but if he comes in and he sees that they're murdering, that they're committing sexual uh, you know, sexual immorality, that there's drunkenness, envy, all of those works of the flesh you see later on in our passage here, those are still sin whether there's a law or not. Do you understand the point here? It's these things he does not want them to use their freedom to indulge in. Now, as we ended our time in verses 13 to 15, we saw that the antidote to giving in to those kinds of of, um, impulses of the flesh, is not to create new laws for ourselves. So if you are tempted by any of those things mentioned later on here in this passage, you know, the the answer to that is not to just go out and, you know, create some rules for yourself and just try to always follow these rules. There's a place for some of that as a right response to sin, and I get that, would never deny it. But that is not ultimately going to be the antidote. The antidote that Paul gives to fighting against those impulses of the flesh is to, through love, serve one another. Love, he says, is what we have to do if we are going to fight against our flesh, those impulses of the flesh that continue to be sinful even though the law is done. But the question is how, right? That, that's the question. How exactly do we go about loving in this kind of way? That is the real question. Well, you could say that this is what verses 16 to 26 are here for, to try to help us understand how we, through love, serve one another and thus not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Well, we do it, Paul says, by walking in the Spirit. Now, last week I showed you that Paul uses five phrases here in this section to talk about our interaction, I'll call it for the moment, with the Spirit that that should just be a normal part of of the life of the believer. Obviously, the first one is here, the one I just mentioned. We're supposed to walk by the Spirit. Second, Paul says we're to be led by the Spirit. Third, we should experience the fruit of the Spirit. Fourth, we should live by the Spirit. And finally, we should keep in step with the Spirit. And and in in a sense, I think we can view all of these five statements as being synonyms. As, as basically pointing us down the same path because they're basically saying the same thing. Sure, each one has its own little nuance of meaning that might take us a slightly different direction than the other, but by and large, they're all pointing in the same direction. They are describing a way of life that is, A, unique to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, B, contrary to and better than the Old Testament law, and C, the true and genuine antidote to gratifying the desires of the flesh. That makes this kind of a big deal, right? I mean, you think about all that this is supposed to be doing, it's, it's kind of a big deal. Whatever this is, it is obviously central to and inseparable from the Christian life. 
So that means we need to think about it just a little bit. So what does it mean exactly then to walk by the Spirit? We'll take one aspect of it today, and then we'll pick it up again next week. Today we're going to start by understanding this word, walk. Now, it's a very simple word and one that is so commonly used throughout the New Testament that most of us probably just go right past it and never give any thought to it whatsoever. But today we need to think about it a little more deeply than we normally do. Its definition is very, very simple. It means to live your normal, everyday life. That's it. If you can remember that, you understand the word walk, to live your normal, everyday life. And it shows up over and over again throughout the New Testament. For example, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, that we are supposed to walk in newness of life. So in terms of your normal, everyday kind of life, you should be walking in a new way, not like the old way that you used to walk before you were a believer. Uh, Romans 14, verse 5, we're supposed to walk in love, to live your normal, everyday life in love. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we're supposed to walk by faith, living your normal, everyday life in faith. Ephesians 2, 10, we're supposed to walk in good works. That's just a normal, everyday experience for the believer, not just when you know, someone needs to move or there's been a natural disaster that you're supposed to give money to. Every day, you're supposed to get up and go out and live in good works. Ephesians 5, 8, walk as children of light. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 2.6, walk in Jesus. Colossians 4.5, walk in wisdom. 1 John 1.7, walk in light. 2 John 4, walk in truth. And there are more. I'm not even giving you all of them. Not only are we given the positive aspects of what are supposed to be a part of our normal everyday life, but we're also told what is not supposed to be a part of our normal everyday life. So for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, we are not supposed to walk according to the flesh. As you go about your normal, everyday life, you should not be giving into your flesh, that sin nature part of you. 1 Corinthians 3.3, 3, we are not supposed to walk only in a human way. We're supposed to be in a different plane, above simply what everyone else is walking. He'll say that again later in a different way. 2 Corinthians 5.7, we're not supposed to walk by sight. Ephesians 2.2, we're not supposed to walk in our trespasses and sins. It's how you used to walk. Don't walk in them anymore. Ephesians 4.17, we're not supposed to walk as the Gentiles do. Ephesians 5.15, we're not supposed to walk as unwise. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, we're not supposed to walk in idleness. 1 John 1.6, we're not supposed to walk in darkness. Again, just a few examples. There are more. It's actually a very interesting study to go through, to look through all of the New Testament writings and see all of the different things we're told that should be a part of our normal, everyday life, as well as all the things that should not be be a part of our normal everyday life. Now, even though you probably haven't done that study, can I ask you a quick question? And my guess um, is that most of you will get it right. As you hear all of those examples, okay, the positive ones are of the things that are supposed to be a part of your normal everyday life, as well as the negative ones, the things that are not supposed to be a part of your everyday life, do you get the sense from any or from all of them that these are supposed to be regular, constant features of your life, or that they are just supposed to be occasional, temporary, come-and-go kind of experiences? What do you think? A, constant, permanent. B, temporary, occasional. A, all right, very good. I think that you should all have picked up on the fact that these are supposed to be constant experiences of the Christian life. You should constantly be walking in love. You should constantly be walking in truth. You should constantly be walking in faith. 
You should constantly not be walking according to the flesh. You should constantly not be walking like the Gentiles walk or in darkness or all the other things. It's constant. That is the whole meaning of the New Testament idea of walk. It's the reason of all the metaphors that could have been chosen for what these uh, authors are trying to say. They pick this one because how much of your day do you spend walking? You get out of bed, and you walk to the bathroom, and then you walk to the coffee pot, and then you walk to the shower, and then you walk to your closet, and you walk to your car, and you walk to work, or you chase your kids around the house. You walk around the neighborhood or to the store, and then you walk home. You walk to the dinner table. You walk to your couch. You walk to bed. You do it all day long, and most of the time, you don't even think about it. It's just constant, normal, regular activity of life. That is what this metaphor implies. This is how you're supposed to live or not live every moment of every day of life. Have I beaten that horse dead enough now? Like, I'm trying to make a really, really main point here. All right. Now, back to Galatians 5.16. Here, we're supposed to walk by the Spirit. In other words, I'm supposed to live my normal, everyday life by the Spirit. And just like with all of those other things that we all agreed a moment ago are not supposed to be temporary and occasional kinds of components of the Christian life, guess what? This one isn't either. It's supposed to be a normal, regular feature of life, not just when you're feeling particularly spiritual or emotional, not just when when you're in a church service, not just in a, a ministry setting, It's not a temporary thing, a come-and-go kind of thing. Walking in the Spirit is supposed to be a normal, constant, everyday life kind of thing. From the moment you get up in the morning and you go to the bathroom and you brush your teeth and you take your shower and you choose your clothes and you get in the car and you go to work or you watch the kids, you talk to people, whatever you are doing alone with your family or with anyone else, it is for every last moment of that and everything in between. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. And this is confirmed, I think, by those other phrases that he uses here throughout this section about being led by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. He is describing what should be the constant experience of the life of the believer. Constant. All day long, every moment of every day, just living your normal life in the Spirit. Now, As an immediate point of application, let me just say, and if you're not aware, uh, I don't think this will surprise very many, but if you're not aware, let me just say that this is not how everyone in Christianity understands what it means to walk in the Spirit. Okay, it's just not. Uh, For at least some portion, I don't know if it's large or small, some portion of believers out there, they would view these phrases as more of a temporary or occasional kind of thing, okay, as if... Uh, they would define them practically as being very emotional, spiritual, mystical, and that's pretty much it. They, something that might happen in a church service or in a ministry setting. Um, I'm not sure, in all fairness, if I asked them directly, hey, do you think the Spirit, you know, walking in the Spirit is just an occasional thing, if they would ever say yes to that. I just, but the way they think about it and typically talk about it doesn't, it doesn't give you the sense that they view it as anything more than a, an occasional kind of pop-up experience that's going to happen in someone's life. However, before we pounce on them too harshly, in all fairness, they are not alone. You know, a few years ago, I was reading a book. It was actually written for pastors, but it would apply to all of us. And in the book, the author made a comment that has stuck with me ever since. The author says that many 
pastors, but I'd say many believers, live as practical atheists. They're not atheists, okay? They believe that God exists. They, you know, they're genuine believers, and not questioning that. But in terms of a day-to-day experience, they live practically like atheists live. You say, what do you mean? Well, what the author meant was you might get up in the morning and spend time in God's Word, and during that time, yeah, you're definitely thinking about God. But then as soon as that's done, you go sit down at your desk and you start answering emails, and it's like God's gone. Because <laughs> I don't need him for answering email, right? Yeah, nobody answered. Good. Uh, I, I don't need him to, to, to get in the car and drive to Food Lion. I don't need him for a lot of things. That's how I live. Am I actually an atheist? No, no, not at all. I I very much believe in God, but when it comes to how I'm actually living on a day-to-day basis, there's some truth to the fact that functionally a lot of us end up living like practical atheists day-to-day. It's not that we're being ungodly. We're just living godlessly, acting as if he's not there and it's we're not really dependent on him for everything, breath, life, strength, and everything in between. So, so it's convicted me. And it's that disconnect between what we know or believe and how we live that applies to this particular context here. You see, we may know or believe that we need to live our normal, everyday life in the power of the Spirit. But practically speaking, do we? I mean, do we really think that or live that way? Do we talk like that, think like that, pray like that? I mean, how many of us this morning got up and the first thing, as soon as, you know, our eyes open or our minds are aware that we're awake, we go, Spirit of God, you know, help me, empower me to go brush my teeth and get a shower. Okay, now that's a silly example, silly on purpose. The point is, is we probably don't. We don't even think about it, that maybe we need to be empowered for every moment of life. Not just, but oh my goodness, I mean, if you're leading community group tonight, (laughs) if you have a Bible study, if you want to share the gospel with someone, if you're sitting down to read your your Bible or pray, then all of a sudden, in those moments, you're like, I need the Spirit's help here. I don't know, does this seem like a disconnect a little bit, perhaps? Practically, what we're doing and when we respond like that is we're acting just like those who think and talk as if walking in the Spirit or being led by the Spirit or living by the Spirit is an occasional, temporary, come-and-go thing. We're no different. We might not say that, but functionally, we act that way. We live as if walking by the Spirit is just an occasional thing, and we might go days, days without recognizing our need for the Spirit of God to help us. Oh, but then something big comes up in life or something spiritual in nature, and all of a sudden now, now we recognize we need it. I think, folks, this is our first problem. The truth of the matter is, is that whatever it means to walk by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, which we haven't even really truly defined yet, the first thing you have to understand is that is an every moment of every day thing. There is never like a time in your life where you do need the Spirit and then a time in your life where you don't. Got it? There there might be times where I sense that need more than other times. I think that's right. It makes sense to me, at least from a human level. But there will never be a moment where I do not need the Spirit's empowerment. Life in the Spirit, which again, we haven't fully defined yet, is supposed to be a constant, constant thing for the believer And it just strikes me that we never hear about this. 
You know, last week at the end of uh, at the end of my sermon, I made reference to the issue of experiences, and I specifically said, "Hey, look, you know, if you got any kind of an issue or concern about anything I had said, this was last week, um, come talk to me. But but don't come talk to me about your experiences, either yours or somebody else's." And the reason I gave for that at the time was because I, I don't I don't have a way to judge that. Some experiences are are real, I believe that, and some are not. I, okay, that's just a truth. And I have no way to sit here and discern between your experiences and or someone you heard about online or something like your grandma's. I can't, I can't go through that and try to figure out what's real, what's not. I have no, no basis, no standard here to help me. Experience isn't authoritative. Scripture is. That's what I said. Today, though, I'll add another comment. Part of my problem in hearing and responding to people's stories about uh, their experience with the Holy Spirit and take it this way, I mean it, and hear me to the end, is it, it kind of strikes me of, of like how social media works a little bit. You know, people tend to only put the big things that make them look good on social media, right? It's the happy picture of the kids and the family at the zoo. It, it's the funny, cute thing that the, the baby did. It's the big promotion that someone got. They only put the big things out there. Nobody's tweeting pictures of them tying their shoes, right? It's too mundane. Who would care? Nobody's putting on, on Facebook that they brushed their teeth this morning. It's too mundane. Nobody would care whatsoever. And from my perspective, that is what I've noticed over the years that people tend to point to when it comes to an experience of the Holy Spirit, particularly TV preachers or anyone making money off of the matter, just as a little aside. But, but even with normal people, too, I almost never hear anyone come to me and say, man, Stacy." I was really tempted by sin this week, and the Spirit helped me say no. I never hear anyone come to me and say, Stacy, she said this thing to me, and I just wanted to blow up in her face, but the Spirit of God gave me self-control and kindness in that moment. I never hear anyone come to me and say, Stacy, the Spirit gave me joy this week. Those don't sell books. They're not tweetable. No one cares about those kinds of little mundane things. But may I ask you a question? If the Spirit of God helped you say no to a temptation to sin, how is that less miraculous than any of the other big things that happened in this world this week? (laughs) If the Spirit of God gave you self-control and kindness so that you did not blow up in her face when she said that thing to you. How is that any less amazing? If you have the joy of the Lord in you this week, what is less about that than someone being healed or some other thing happening? Like, why do we look at all of those things and act like they're nothing? I don't, I don't understand. And my guess is, and I can't prove this, so you can't prove me wrong either, but my guess is, is for every one big, genuine experience of the Spirit that happens in our lives, there must be tens or hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of little mundane ones that never get noticed. Nobody ever talks about them. Nobody ever shares them. No one acts like they even care. (laughs) Shame on us. Shame on us for how we view and treat the Spirit in relation to this you have people who sit around and like spend days and days and weeks and months of their lives like, God, why won't you show me some big thing or do some big thing? And he's given them a million little things and they pay no attention. Shame on us. And so I say to you, do not despise the small things, particularly when it comes to how the Spirit works in our lives. 
if you said no to sin, that did not come from you. <laughs> There's nothing in your flesh that wants to say no to sin. So you got to see God's spirit at work in your life this week. That is amazing. And if you had joy, that didn't come naturally from you. You got to see the spirit's work in your life. That is something to give praise for. It may not sell a book, but man, it is no less valuable. So don't despise the small things. Don't only seek the big things, particularly when it comes to walking in the Spirit. Don't think of the Spirit's work in our lives as just being some occasional, big, emotional moment of, of something happening. It's just not that, not most of the time. Recognize that it is a constant, everyday, often mundane thing of just helping us walk every moment of every day in obedience to and dependence on Jesus Christ, knowing that this, this alone is our hope and our life. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, forgive us for being the types of people who so often want to see the big and the flashy, and we give so much focus and attention to that, but we pay zero attention to the fact that you are working thousands of miracles in our daily lives every single day. You have told us to walk in the Spirit, just to live our normal day-in, day-out lives in dependence on you. And yet, a lot of us just, maybe not in our theology, but at least in our practice, we just don't really function like that. We think of it as being bigger or more. So just remind us this morning that you work in the small things. You work in the everyday, the mundane. You are you are at work even now. As we sit or stand here together, you are at work even now. You uphold us and you empower us and you work in our hearts and you reveal who we are to, so that we can see and change. You empower that change. These are a million little things, but they are no less miraculous than the big. So may we depend on you, live our lives in you, be led by you this week, and all of the small and normal things of life we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.